Hey, hey, remarkable people. This is Tracy Robbins, and you are listening to Thy Neighbor Podcast. This podcast is designed to inspire you to expand your community, to connect more often with those who are in your path, and of course, to love thy neighbor as thyself. You will hear from individuals in my day-to-day life who are crushing it and making the world a more lovely place to inhabit. Have a listen. Nick McKee lives in Atlanta, Metro, Georgia, with his amazingly talented wife and three beautiful and young boys. Nick considers himself a futurist and technologist that focuses on the intersections of energy, technology, and sustainability. Nick was born into a dairy farm family in eastern Utah, served a service mission in the Philippines, and earned a master's in aerospace engineering as well as an international MBA. After over a decade of engineering and project management and living in seven states across the U.S., Nick focuses on strategic and sustainable technology development. Nick, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. We're going to start off with, of course, a topic we have discussed before, and it's climate change. So I feel like climate change is a buzzword that I have heard, but it's always been here. So why do you think that it's more concerning now or that it's more part of the conversation than it was 50 years ago? Yeah. Uh, Tracy, I just have to say, and I said this earlier to you, I am honored to uh, be talking with you today. Um, You and I have a somewhat long history together. And every time we've ever gotten together, I've just had so much fun just talking about anything with you, right? You're never shy to ask me hard things, to ask me meaningful things. And I feel like the, um, the level of depth we can get into conversations goes deep pretty quick, right? We're not surface level anymore between you and I. And um, it's always been a lot of fun. And uh, I'll I'll always remember the antics, like the first time I met you, if you remember our recreation of Newsies impromptu on the streets, it was, it was a lot of fun. So like, that's just, I just have to pay tribute to that, that relationship. that. uh, And I also have to say a little bit about this real fast is that Nick, McKee, the first time I met him, I was visiting Andrea in Boston. So Andrea was my first guest on the podcast. You guys, you can go back and listen to her episode. It's a fabulous episode. And it's one of my most downloaded episodes also. And I just, I went to go visit her and I met Nick and Nick was a blast, had so much energy. And here's the thing that was not a facade. Like that is actually Nick is one of the most energetic people I've ever met. So in the regards that like, I've never met somebody quite with like the amount of energy and the way he does things, like he just is so incredible. So I'm very honored to also have Nick on and that's the connection. So Andrea, my friend, Andrea, this is her husband, Nick. Yes. So just so we know the connection as well. Yeah, I know. No, thank you. You, yeah, can, I... you can dive in and answer the question. Sure, sure. So uh, I think it's really cool that you bring up that 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 question, right? Um, a lot of people they sort of attribute it to being a buzzword. Uh, and there's a lot of buzzwords that float around the business world and, and the science and the technology world. But largely that that term has been around for since the 19, I think, 50s and 70s. 50s to 70s is when it started to generate that uh, scientists were noting things were 
things were, were, were changing during that time period, right? And so the first time climate change was used, I think was the late 70s into the 80s. You've also heard the, the term global warming, which is now kind of like phased into the background because it's not always a, a warming effect that the uh, that the climate has on it. So in general, I, w- I would just not describe it as a buzzword at all. Rather, I, I really find it a fun conversation starter about what is what is it that we're seeing? What phenomenon are we realizing or engaging around the world? And, and North North America, obviously, we're we're in North America, so most of this conversation is going to be with a North North American bent. But but just note that that's not something that was you know conjured up by American scientists. That's something that independently is being observed globally, whether you're in Asia or even Antarctica, obviously, or in like. Scandinavia or wherever like that, that is a common term used, but it's a great conversation starter to talk about what, you know, what are you and I realizing? And it becomes like an anecdotal share moment where I and you can share these experiences we've had that by themselves, they're just experiences. But when you multiply that across an entire globe, global population, you, you start to create dots that actually mean something more significant. And that's really, I, I was excited to talk to you about tonight is what, what that really means. I specifically have talked to you and most of my audience are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so we have discussed previously how kind of the view and perspective of a person from that viewpoint on the climate and on conservation and reusable and renewable and those type of things. And one thing we've talked about is stewardship and being a good steward. And so can, can you tell us, like, can you define for us or what you think being a good steward of the earth is? You can take it from like a spirituality view or even just like a part of humanity is that we're all on this ship together. This is a ship floating through space. And it's the only ship we have. And just like, we'll just relate it to something that uh, many of your viewers can relate to. Uh, Nephi traveling across the waters with his brothers, when they didn't take care of their ship, they saw that there was a dramatic change in their environment. And that had dire consequences on their on their family's ability to survive. And so likewise, you know, I, I see our, our position of being here on this planet is that we are we're indebted to make this planet as sustainable as possible, given the knowledge and given the the, uh, the technology that we have. And going back to the previous question about using the word climate change, is I often tell people like this is, I I personally feel that this is our moment to define not just our generation, but to define who we are as members of this church in humanity, of helping create something an opportunity that's never existed before. And that opportunity is phenomenal. When we look at the opportunity we have of creating a sustainable global environment and ecosystem that will last for generations to come. This is kind of the view I'm going to kind of cut to the meat of this conversation, Tracy, and then we'll go into a lot of the, the details on it, right? Whether you or not, you believe or not that we created a problem, acknowledging that there is a problem and that we not only have the tools to solve that problem, but we have the responsibility to solve that problem. That will create opportunity of prosperity beyond your and mine wildest imaginations. 
And it's when we step up to that plate to do something that's never been done before globally for all of humanity. We become our own heroes. We become our our future generations heroes. And the counter to that is that if, if we decide not to, then we miss out on so much for our own prosperity and so much for our, our kids' ability to have a meaningful experience on this planet like you and I have had. I feel fortunate that I'm born in this time right now, and I, f- I feel like this is a pioneer moment, and that we all have that pioneer heritage, and we can step up up to that and just acknowledge like this isn't whether or not we started it. This is something that we can do something about. And we can go into details about like, can we actually do something about it? Is there something that we should do about it? I, I think there's so many examples I could I could use in that, but but that's the, the crux of this um, this moment right now. Okay, so I we will go into that. If we want to right now, we can dive into how we can do that. How can we be heroes or help and be good stewards, actual like stewards of this earth? Or we can go into you teaching me about what are the biggest offenders in the accumulation of human-made mass on Earth. Just so clarity for your audience members, um, in our back and forth, Tracy and I, I sent her something that I thought was really intriguing. It was an assessment of how much uh, man-made stuff there was on the planet in terms of mass compared to the biomass that just naturally exists on our planet. And the statistic was pretty pretty astounding. They had, you know, roughly accumulated or roughly. Um, calculated that the amount of biomass on our planet was was nearly on parity with the amount of man-made mass on our planet. We're talking, you know, houses, chairs, cars, buildings, concrete, roads. Think about just for a moment how much asphalt is on laid on the ground. Like I can drive my car from New England across the United States up through Alaska over, take a ferry, a man-made item, a boat across the street, drive it across Russia, down zigzag through China, down to India, all over India. Like I can literally drive my car almost anywhere on this planet. And every last inch of that roadway is pavement. Mostly, there's probably some dirt roads along the way, but mostly just pavement, right? And so, I mean, let's go back to the, the, that, that conversation is that they calculated that the, the amount of actually man-made stuff on the planet is almost at parity with the amount of biomass, your, your trees, your wood and everything, not rocks, but trees and wood and everything else. And by 2050, I think it was that they, they estimate it will be three times the amount of biomass on this planet, meaning that we'll have made three times more mass than stuff that naturally grew on this planet, which kind of blows your mind to think about it, but it, it's not that far-fetched to, to like think that that could be possible. Just go into Google Earth go to anywhere on the planet and sort of like zoom in on a broad area and you'll see man-made propagation in every corner of the of the planet everywhere and if you look at a timeline 50 years ago fast forwarding in today you can just see it like multiplying out like x factor over x factor of what we're doing and so i just want to say like i i personally don't think that that's a bad thing tracy and i think i mentioned that to you i don't think that's a bad thing that we're creating stuff Right, we are inevitably destined to create. That's what humans do. That's what God made us to do: is create. I think what that is telling us, though, is that we also have the the authority and the responsibility, the stewardship, to create with intelligent design and with sustainability in mind. So it's not that 
stuff is bad. It's that stuff that isn't thoughtfully created can accumulate to be detrimental to our, our own prosperity. The windmills, those huge, this the huge air mills. What do you call those? Wind turbines. The, uh, Sorry. The, the wind exactly. turbines. Thank you. They... I've seen that like when they get one chink in like the little thing, it like offsets them because they're balanced. And so they have to get rid of the entire, the entire thing. And they don't know what to do with that when it's. Are you talking the, the blade itself? You see yeah, one the of the blade blades itself. are damaged. They yeah. To, yeah. Yeah. Cause that's a balanced thing. Right. So they have to, they have to either repair it in situ on the turbine, or they can take it down, repair it, put it back up. Or if it's unrepairable, then they do have to replace it. So wind turbine recycling is a new thing that they're they're coming up with creative ways of how to recycle those wind turbines right now. And right. that's right. That's that's part of the pieces. We have to figure these things out. Right. Yeah. Is I mean it's part of it too, is that like we're trying new solutions, but then we're like, oh wait, we've created new problems as well. Or there's there's things that come with this that we didn't maybe foresee. And now we need to solve that problem, right? As well. So this is going to be a continual thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what climate change is about is we are changing the chemical composition of our atmosphere such that it is changing the the way that our atmosphere behaves. I mean it's just like it's like just like any other soup. You put stuff in a soup and it changes the flavor of that soup. Our atmosphere is made up of certain chemical compounds, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide are the biggest three. And there's a bunch, a range of other stuff in there, right? Helium, hydrogen, all these things are naturally found in the, in the atmosphere, methane, all these things are naturally found. What we're doing as a collective society is we are changing the chemical composition of the atmosphere. And in return, it is changing the way it behaves. It is, it is absorbing more heat. If you look at our neighbor, Venus, our planet Venus, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's atmosphere. I don't know if you know this, but Venus is the hottest planet in the solar system. Mm-hmm. And even even though it's not the closest to the sun. So it's the hottest in the solar system because its atmosphere captures almost all the heat that it receives. And the winds on the planet distribute that heat around the planet continuously, making it just like a, a blazing inferno, even in the shade. It's not, it doesn't cool off in the shade. Mercury being as closest to the sun as it is, when it turns away from the sun because its atmosphere is so thin, it it cools off to very cold. But Venus, it's it's just like a firing inferno even in the polar regions because the atmosphere carries the heat uh, all around the planet. So what's happening on the Earth is that we are putting so many different things in the atmosphere. And I'll say CO2 definitely is one of them. We all know that CO2 carbon capture. We, we hear about this, this. But other other things too, like methane, different chemicals as well. And this isn't something, I think some some people believe this is like new and Never happened, or that I all hear a lot of the argument that ice ages have occurred before, that the planets changed before, and those are all true. Don't get me wrong. I think we can look at history and see those changes. What's what's occurring now is a rapid change. And if you want to look at something that we've done in the past, after we've noted something in the past we've done, look to the to the ozone layer scare that we had. When was it back in the 90s? I think it was. So it, it became known that refrigerant that we were using for cooling and AC were escaping to the atmosphere and it was depleting the ozone, which if you don't know the ozone in, ozone is, I could go into that, but it's a very technical thing about uh, like O3 oxygen. <laughs> but in, in short, we were deteriorating this ozone layer over the polar regions, which was shielding us from harmful radiation from, from solar, solar radiation, right? And 
all we had to do was as a society say like, look, this is super damaging to our planet. And within a short span of a few years, we banned the use of those refrigerants. We, we banned together as a society and fixed the ozone as much as we could. We had an immediate effect on our, on our atmosphere because of an immediate decision, relatively immediate decision that we as humanity decided to do and was important. It's an easy example. And we said we pulled up lots of examples. It's an easy example is making decisions that are impactful and collectively as a humanity acting on those. So what are some of the things that we can do right now? All right. So in saying that, I, I wanted to say that, that I think there's a lot of a lot of things you can look up on what you could do at home. And, and yes, you should do those things. I think we all have to just look at it from a high level though and say, hey, look, uh, acknowledging that there's some things that we can do as a society and then and then seeing where the biggest pieces are. Because like I can tell all your listeners right now to go home and recycle or something, right? But honestly, like it, that's, I mean, that, that's just like one little thing, one little chink of, of what this is, where this is going. Um, I think, I think, I think be, being proactive about what it is we do as a society that's detrimental and being cognitive about the things we buy, uh, the, the way we travel, um, like the way we, what like does, are we recycling? And if, and if you're living somewhere that doesn't recycle, then why, like you should be talking to your community leaders about that. Or if you're living someplace that recycling does occur, but that recycling doesn't truly get re- recycled or it gets like shipped halfway across the world to recycle, right? Then that's something you need to talk to your community leaders about. I think these, this is like the grassroots conversation across the globe that we need to be having about all parts of that chain because there's so many different aspects that need to be addressed simultaneously. And, and I think one of the questions that you pose, if we can skip to it, Tracy, if you don't mind, you asked me about electronic vehicles. Is that right? Yeah, I asked about like the conversation around electric electric vehicles and the carbon footprint, and that should should that be our primary focus or not? <laughs> I think as as a society, yeah, the less the less carbon we put into the air should be our, our focus, right? Knowingly, I travel a lot for work. I fly in an airplane that spits out jet fuel. Like, I'm not saying that we need to stop flying. I I think that's a uh, or traveling. I think we I, I think that's that's it's too far to go at, but why not, you know, why not create, create means of traveling that are more sustainable? Um, and I'm always awed by companies out there that are, are diligently trying to solve that, that problem. So one of the companies that I love uh, so far is, is called Jevo, G-E-V-O. Your, your listeners can look this up. They are on a mission to create carbon neutral biodiesel and jet fuel. And they've figured out how to scale that. You know, they, they, they do waste collection off of agriculture. They create, um, create biofuel, jet fuel, biodiesel from bio waste, biomass. And, and those type of actions where, where companies and people, let's just say like people run companies, people come up with these ideas. They're, they're stepping up to this call that we all have to do something. And they're coming up with very clever solutions to do it. And, and I, I really applaud those types of actions. So should we all go out and buy electronic vehicles? I would say if if you can afford it, then yes. I, I think that's a wise decision to make. If you can't afford it, then give kudos to those that can and and like look for that opportunity for the price point of electronic vehicles to, to hit 
where they're necessary and, and do that. And now, obviously, there's a large conversation about like what that means and can you do it and can you travel long distances? So this is this is the part where we need everybody, right? There needs to be charging infrastructure. We need to rethink the way we commute. Um, uh, can, can you ride your bike or walk to work? Yeah. You know, I've... I lived several locations where members in our in our church lived like a couple blocks from church and yet they drove to church every Sunday. And I always just laughed. I mean, nothing of harsh criticism, but I know I get it. I get it. Like maybe you've got little kids and you want to not have them get cold or maybe you were just like too tired to walk. Like there's all these reasons why. And so I'm not saying that everyone doesn't have a justification for it. But I think in general, like preparing ourselves to to do a little more, I think is a is a great step to 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 go toward. Well, I mean, I feel like by associating with you and Andrea, I have learned some things I can do in my home that are just maybe things I haven't thought of previously, too, right? So so being in the mindset of of reusing and reducing and that that's a mindset as well. And so I'm curious, like, why did you be, why did you, I mean, maybe there's just this question of like, why did you get into this? Like, why is this your passion? <laughs> like, where did this even come from? I want to take you on a memory lane journey of how, how that came to be. But first I do want to say one thing your listeners could think about, you know, practical at right. home things to do. Um, and, and maybe this is what you were alluding, alluding to earlier is that, there was a time several years ago, my wife and I, you know, we used to use Clorox wipes around the house all the time. And we used to use spray and paper towels and, and use paper products in the house all the time. And we realized when you're like, you know, we, we throw away a lot of paper products in our house, right? Like, I wonder, if, I wonder if we could just, you know, go to some other system to get rid of this. And so we bought a bunch of Terry towels and some, some very cheap rags and, we cleverly designed a system that allowed us to just not have or use paper towels or paper products. And, and that includes like paper plates and paper cups and plastic cups. And, uh, and it is kind of cool today. Like our, our, our weekly waste is a, is a simple five gallon kitchen bag that, that like, that's it with a family of five. We, we produce one a weekly, one five gallon kitchen bag of, of waste and everything else is recycled or we use, we have a rag system that we wash the rags daily. So we just use one rag a day and that goes to clean the kids, clean the counters. We just, we use it. We're pretty frugal. And then we have organic spray um, or like natural spray we use to clean things off with. So we don't have to worry about harsh chemicals or anything. And it, it's pretty phenomenal that like uh, our trash can, like I, we've gone three weeks without having to take our trash to the curb just because we don't, we don't produce the amount of waste that we would have back in the day. Um, so just, just put that as an easy thing to think about, about, and, and it saves us a lot too. Like we don't buy paper products. We don't toilet paper. Yes, we buy. Right. But other than that, we don't buy paper products. Um, it, it's interesting because Andrea, uh, she and I talk sometimes, Andrea, my wife, and for those that, that didn't know her name and, I, I, I call it these memories of when I was in elementary school and the, the reality of it, I don't really know exactly how I got on that, on like the sustainability thing. But I remember in elementary school, even in third grade, I just did a science fair project of, of algae to create oxygen for the atmosphere. And 
I remember like trying to tell all my classmates and teachers how awesome algae was. And most people, you know, growing up in Eastern Utah, people were like, they were either grossed out or they didn't even know what kelp was or algae or kelp was. And then I remember the next year I did like, uh, I did like natural filter water filtration system. So I'd, I had, I like made jars of cans of, of like sand and silt and biomass, whatever. And I'd put dirty water in the top and see the clean water fall out. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I tried to sell people how awesome it was that you could do this. And people were like, people just didn't care and I didn't get it. Right. And so I think a lot of it too, is I grew up, like I said, on a dairy farm and, uh, being, being on the farm, I think maybe we're, we're a little unique in our family is that, um, we weren't your traditional like cowboys or farm, (laughs) farm folk. We, we had, we subsisted off the land. Don't get me wrong. It was a full-fledged farm, but I remember hours and hours and hours of being on the dairy milking or feeding cattle and being so proficient at doing that, you kind of get used to the like the muscle memory of the action. And you just have those hours on end just to think. And I remember thinking about things like, how do I make this more efficient? How do I make this more sustainable? How do I like, what's the best way to, I don't know, to like use this land so that it makes the most for us instead of, instead of just like trying to get by with it. And so I think, those thousands of hours of just being in my mental zone, thinking about this stuff has, has really just solidified me to, to be excited about it. So when I went to college, as you read earlier, I did, I did a mechanical aerospace uh, undergrad and I did a, a, an aerospace graduate degree. And a lot of my, my colleagues in college, I love them to death. They all went on to do amazing things. A lot of them went on to work in the, uh, missile and defense industry, like making missiles. That's a, what a lot of mechanical and aerospace engineers do. They they make missiles and and fighter jets and and things for the military and defense. But I I didn't. I wanted to be in in renewable energy. So I went um, and worked on wind turbines and and photovoltaic systems. And so my my contribution was that I was able to help redesign the way we calculate loading on wind turbine blades so that we could make a more accurate simulation on how to use wind blades effectively and how to simulate those before we built them. We wouldn't build them and find out it wasn't what we wanted and like reiterate. We could we could expedite that iteration process via simulation using the aerodynamic modeling that I had I, I created for simulation models. Wow, I had no idea. Oh, you didn't? Oh, okay. Well, I didn't yeah. know you did that part about the wind turbines. Yeah. Very exciting. Wow. So I'm taking this from my experience, but... When people hear conversations around reducing their personal waste or around choices we can make that that might reduce, because I think that's maybe where I focus is I'm more focused on like my little realm of control, but I feel like you have the mindset that like there's a much larger perspective you can take and control that you could potentially or like impact you could have. So if you hmm. were in charge in charge of a science fair on sustainability, what would you encourage? What would you encourage in that? Like what kind of solutions would you be encouraging kids to do for their science projects? You know what? I recently actually did this. One of the projects I work on is that we're we're creating a virtual reality that allows you to see where electricity flows inside of a city. And we're, we've created a, 
a workshop that goes along with it. And so we go out to anything from elementary to college. I've even done a MBA students. I've done a workshop with them on this. And it's always a, f- a phenomenal experience. But the one that I just want to bring up for this scenario was a group of third graders and kudos to their teacher that, that like sent them on this track. And then we found her and she wanted us to pull us in and do this workshop. But we did this workshop where we asked them, you are now a little city and you're charged with strengthening the power grid in your city to be more resilient against blackouts and brownouts. What are you going to do to do that? And so they came up with all those scenarios of how they're going to bury the power lines or fix up the existing power lines or put in wind turbines or put in a hydro dam or put in photovoltaic. And they and then they had a town hall where they all got to like duke it out on who should be the project that should be implemented. And then after that, uh, we asked them, you know, knowing what you now know in all these discussions, if you were to create a job that didn't exist before, what would that job be? And regarding regarding this topic or climate change or anything. And to see the amount of unique ideas that came out of third graders was just astounding. These kids are popping out ideas like I'd create like a satellite system that could track animal populations and where those populations were migrating so that we could know what climate was doing to to animal populations. Another one would be like, I'd create like a rapid house builder that could build houses for people that had to move because they couldn't live where they were living anymore. And these third graders were coming up with unique solutions like that. And so if I were to run my own science fair, I would probably pose that question is that I'd give them a bunch of existential threats to humanity and our our planet and ask them like, if you could create a company or a job that would help fix these things, what would that, what would that look like? And just see where they go with it. And I think, I think you'd spawn off a ton of ideas. And if anything, if anything didn't work, like if, if they didn't do any of those things, I think even them thinking about them and presenting something would start to think on their minds, what am I doing to help greater humanity get over, uh, overcome some of the obstacles that we're going to face in the future? People can kind of feel guilty. I think about some of these things or it can feel like, oh, wow, I could probably do better at this or whatever it is. But also maybe there's some resistance, of course, to change. How have you found that it's been most productive to talk to people about this without being condescending or making it be like a turnoff conversation, but be something that people <laughs> want to engage in? You know, I, I love the, the title of your podcast, Love Thy Neighbor. And I think it's, it's fitting on, on many fronts. And this is, this is not exclusive of that. Like uh, when, when you talk to people with that in mind, like the love of humanity in mind, it's it's actually a very building conversation, and I totally get it that people feel guilty. Like I said, I for work, like I have to travel. We all we've all got to drive a car, right? And so we shouldn't feel guilty that we are blessed to live in a modern society. There's certainly societies around the world that don't have that capability, that convenience, right? I think being mindful of what we're doing and then working towards making that better, I think is, is the goal. So it's not so much about what you're doing, but, but rather like where you, where you can go, what you can do and what direction you're headed. And that's kind of like a, an, you know, an echoing theme with inside of the gospel that we can relate to a little bit. I mentioned this earlier and, and I want to go into some of the, the more specifics about like what we can do, but I just want to say that ahead of that, that, that there is an immense amount of prosperity at our fingertips if we choose to do that. And I mentioned a company earlier that's doing something cool, biofuel, right? Making jet fuel out of out of bio sources. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty awesome. Obviously you have your electric car companies that are 
are coming up with electric vehicles. I don't know if you know this, but in 2024, we're going to get the airless tires. So imagine never having a blowout or a flat tire ever again. And, and to make it even better, like when your tire treading gets low, you just take it in and then they just put a new layer of tread on your existing tire. It's just like a thin little layer they put on it and you're good to go again. Like th- these things are pretty cool and in- ingenuitive. And I, I think there's a lot of a lot of um, economic prosperity when we head down that track of saying, you know, we are going to change the atmosphere. Uh, we're we're going to change it. We're going to change the way we live as a society. We're going to be more sustainable. We're going to build homes that can utilize passive solar heating versus boxes that aren't really that well insulated or oriented towards the sun so that we've got to now like pump heat into them all winter long because we're going to freeze it if we don't. Instead, we need architects that sit down and say, you know, I'm going to use the best resource I have to make this home efficient. And that's the sun. I'm going to orient the house this direction. I'm going to put windows right here. I'm going to put better insulation on this side. We're going to make this house like super more efficient. That's the type of people we need, like architects architects doing amazing things up front so that it saves us effort down downstream my guess and and i only say this because i talk to people all day long of all walks of life of all faiths and i have this conversation of a do we even need to do anything and b can we do anything should we know that like there's a problem to address i just want to hit that one home so and and i'm saying this i don't want to turn this into like throwing data out there because ultimately someone's going to go find some counter data to like bring out me and say, well, look, this, this didn't add up to what you said. And the reality of it is there's a lot of misinformation and half information and one-sided information out there. I just want to throw some anecdotal things out. I think we can all relate to the, the big one is wildfires in, in the United States. So if you look at the last 40 years of wildfires in the United States, you can go to several sources, academic and uh, government sources that will just drop you data that shows uh, that the number of wildfires over the last 40 years has actually decreased. However, the amount of destruction and acres burned of those wildfires has dramatically increased. And what that tells us is that we actually have pretty good policy management of controlling fire. What we're seeing is that the severity of these fires, the size of these fires is dramatically increasing. And some would pose that, the, yeah, we're not doing controlled burning enough or we're not like taking out dead timber enough. And those things are true. But even if you tried to account for all those things, we're way far ahead of that curve in terms of amount of destruction burned every year. And let me, here's a stat on it, right? So, so roughly like tw- uh, 40 to 20 years ago, uh, annually in the United States, there's about 3.2 million acres burned annually, collectively, right? In the last 20 years, we have now increased that to an average of over 6 million acres annually. Like that, The amount of acres burnt in the United States has doubled in the last 20 years. And to put that into perspective, I think it's like 6.2, 6.3 million acres um, is what's what the new averages in climbing. That's the size of Rhode Island, Delaware, and Connecticut combined, completely charred to nothing. Or you can look at it, it's a size, roughly the size of Massachusetts or, or Vermont that we're burning every year completely to just zilch. And that includes structures that are in that people have died. And it's funny because do you remember paradise in the campfire in 2018 when that burned down paradise, California, that was devastating. Compare that to 2020 and it was nothing. It paradise was nothing compared to 2020 fire season, Tracy. And I just want to say that, that 
into perspective, like we become desensitized to what's going on around us, right? We're like the the in the boiling pot, right? We we just don't get it. And I just want to say, like, even if we were to do absolutely everything we did now to curb excess carbon, uh, carbon dioxide and, and other methane and other um, things going into our atmosphere, if we were to do everything we did now to like stop that completely or to like make it so it wasn't increasing, it wasn't decreasing, which is staying the same, or if we even decreased it today, we would still see the worst is yet to come. 2020, for all the for all how bad it was, will look nothing, will pale in comparison to what we will see in the next decade. Because the atmosphere isn't just a switch you flip on and off. It is a system and systems are like engines and they rev up and then they have to rev down. Like th- this thing has has years of implications. What we're trying to prevent is the worst uh, the, what the worser after the worst from happening, right? I, which I don't even want to like start to fathom of what that would look like because uh, what I've what I've seen is bad. So I live on the East Coast, right? So we don't have fires, but we do have hurricanes. And so I want to pull in another stat on hurricanes, right? So the hurricane, and you can get this data from NOAA and from other credible um, institutional and government sources. So roughly the number of named storms, and that's that'd be like a severe storm. Uh, back around the year of 1950 for for like 50 years or whatever averaged about five to seven pretty severe storms per year i mean that's that's named and and more right uh storms per year after the year 2000 we can see this sort of inflection point now right 20 years last 20 years after year 2000 you see this ramp up and we're now averaging 20 per year 20 severe storms per year whereas opposed to 70 years ago we're looking at five to seven per year and living on the East coast, we get hammered all the time. And it's so sad to see like every year, New Orleans, Louisiana is getting hit again and again and again. And even, even now we know, I don't know if you've seen the news. Um, today's December 13th, Kentucky had a 200 mile swath tornado that killed 64 people. Kentucky, Kentucky is a pretty mountainous area, right? We're not talking, we're not talking Kansas here, folks. We're talking Kentucky. And, and knowingly, I say that I, you know, to those in your audience that are scientifically and academically grounded, I lived, uh, I lived weather science for, you know, like eight years for my profession. I understand it is, is a stochastic model, which for those of you who want to know what stochastic means, it means that you cannot predict or analyze it on a single point basis, or even like a somewhat large population basis, you can only analyze these things on a statistical long-term basis. And so I want to just give you those statistical long-term charts about, we're talking 40 to 50 to 70 years of historical records that give us this indication about the type of environment that we're now living. This is our new norm. And what I want to, what I want to create is a norm that's sustainable from, from my kids. You know, I want my kids to go see a glacier. I want my kids to like go build a cabin in the woods and feel like they can go stay in that cabin and not not fear that it's going to burn down any moment. You know, these are things that are real now, and and I want to I want to live that dream for them. All right, so so there's a couple stats to pull out, and we can pull up some more, but I think those are good. So I want um I want to just touch point real quickly on what things that we can do by looking at things that we have done in the past, right? So for those that don't think there's anything we can do to 
to modify our climate, I would say look no further than a couple points in the past. Uh, one of them is acid rain. We all know acid rain, right? I feel lucky that I've never had to personally experience acid rain. It sounds pretty bad. <laughs> but we all learned what it was in history, right? Industrialization caused uh, toxic pollutants to be put into the atmosphere, and those would just accumulate into our precipitation, fall down, and toxify lakes, kill forests. Imagine if back in like, when was it? Like the 1960s and 70s, they decided that toxic, toxic, toxic rain, oh, sorry, acid rain, was it wasn't real and like like ah there's nothing you can do about it even if it is real like, they just kept on status quo right we like <laughs> i lived up in the northeast right i've i've gone hiking in the woods and i've gone to a prestigious mountain lake and i've gone to jump in that lake and before i jump in it lo and behold there's a sign that says caution lake water contaminated do not wade do not drink and I was like, what the? So you look it up and like, surely enough, like this lake is still untouchable by mankind because we toxified it back in the day. And 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 today, luckily, we've cleaned up a lot of that. We've stopped the the sources of that. So anyway, that's that's an example. Acid rain. I think we all can agree that we've we've found the source of acid rain and we stopped it, right? Other things we've done is if you remember back in the back in the 1940s, 30s, 40s. We, we had a term called environmental refugee. So you've seen the pictures of history. The, the migrants from the Midwest moved to California along Route 66 to escape the Dust Bowl, right? The Dust Bowl was caused by um, unsustainable farming practice in the Midwest. I can't find a, I hope no one wants to disagree with that, right? Right. <laughs> right. Um, and those 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 were refugees. Like they had to migrate to someplace more sustainable because they had made where they were unsustainable. Right today, we have a immigrant, a, a refugee, environmental refugee crisis of unparamounted proportions. Right, there are vast swaths of Africa that are so uninhabitable now because of lack of rain due to drought that you see mass migration happening and you see this all the time on the news. You see, Oh, more Africans have gone up to the Mediterranean and have gone across to try and escape to Europe. Why do we think they're doing this? It's because they cannot make a living. Not, we're not just talking like they don't have enough money. We're talking about, they can't grow food. They cannot grow food. They can't drink water. Their family has no hope. They are an environmental refugee. And, and that is, that can be taken across across the globe, right? We have environmental refugees in the United States, people that are living in low-lying communities in the, in the South, you're talking Louisiana, Mississippi, that are fed up of their houses flooding every single year. Their houses, it's not sustainable. They are moving, they're relocating. People in California are relocating out of woodland areas off of areas that are no longer sustainable due to the, uh, the fire risk and we're moving in mass migrations. We've got as a society to prepare to prepare for a migration like we have never seen before. It will be phenomenal and only get worse if we don't do something about it. And so, you know, having that mindset to say like, look, people are going to be moving. We need to make we need to make space for people. We need to be able to like open arm welcome people that are are in that situation because you know it's not like they meant 
to build a house someplace and sustainable. It's that they ha- they live someplace. Their family may have lived there for hundreds hundreds of years, and now everything that they've known is is no longer sustainable for them, and they're seeking refuge somewhere else. And opening up our arms to that, um, while while helping like stop stop that from occurring more. I don't know if you know this, but like I don't know what's going to happen to Florida. I I know that's just like a broad stroke, right? If, if, if sea level rise is real, right. I'm not saying it is or is not real, but you know, go do your own discovery on that. If it's real, it only takes a couple of feet for most of Florida to be hard hit. Like we can't afford that as a society because we're talking, we're talking eight plus 10 million people now suddenly need to move. And, and that's something that we as a society have to address head on. We, we cannot just say like, well, that's, you know, uh, the, the earth was meant to do that. We have the ability to change the climate by making action, and we need to take that action. And if we do so, there's an amount of prosperity that we'll receive from that because there is a new economy that will be built off of sustainable products, sustainable practice, and conversations, the likes of which we have never seen that sort of prosperity. We will innovate in so many ways that will just be blowing your mind on like, hey, I didn't know you could do that, right? Is that even possible? Um, and and there's another movement I really like down in New Mexico, northern New Mexico. I don't know if you know this, but there's there's this Earthship movement down there, right? They're building homes that are sustainable, complete off the grid, using rain collection systems and and like reusing their their wastewater over and over to 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 like dishwater gets turned into toilet water, gets turned into watering the greenhouse inside your house, gets turned into watering the plants outside your house. So it's pretty cool. But but the guy that started it all, he made a pretty interesting quote once. He said. He said, you know, in order for me to build these homes, I fought and I fought and I fought with the government because they were classifying, they they weren't permitting anything we're doing. They're shutting us down. He said, the only way that I could do that was I had to classify my, my home building sites as waste dumps before the state of New Mexico would allow him to experiment on on sustainable housing. It's like, it's easier for you to go get permit to do wild, crazy medical research on medication that will give you 15 side effects, right? And possibly cancer or go, go test nuclear bombs in the middle of the desert and decimate tens of thousands of acres for 200,000 years because of nuclear activity. And yet I can't, I can't practice sustainable housing methods in this part of the world that no one else wants. Like, why is that the case? Like this, this is like the, the governmental regulatory thing that we need we need activism. We need people out there voicing like this is something we must do. And if we do choose to do it, we'll have so much opportunity ahead of us. And so in that regard, like you, you probably noted, I am much of an opportunist. I mean, like I, I look forward to the future. I see it as a, as a bright future. I look forward to my kids' future. I think there's a bright future there, but we, we individually and collectively have to make it happen. It won't just naturally occur. And this is our moment to step up and become that, you know, we always talk about the greatest generation post-World War II, right? They defeated this existential threat of the, the Axis power, like the, the Germans and the Japanese. And they defeated that. And in the wake of that, you know, they created a, a, an era of prosperity unlike ever been seen before. And we call that the golden era of the, the American dream and the greatest generation. This is our golden era, should we choose to make it so. And I fully believe that that's true. 
what you said there, you talked about abundance and having an opportunist mindset towards the future because you feel like the future is filled with opportunities to improve and to make this a world we've never known. And I really think that's quite opposite than what most people are feeling in 2021 and 2022. Even talking to people, I feel like there's a lot of trepidation and uncertainty. How do you overcome scarcity and a Ah. mindset from other people? Okay. Okay. Here's what I would say to that. Uh, A little predecessor to that is that we do have limited number of specific resources on this planet. Let me tell you the the thing that we don't have a limitation on. We do not have a limitation on human innovation and collective will. We only have a limitation on those things if we decide to to shut it down. And so for every for every resource that we say we have scarcity on, that just means that we haven't innovated on that enough to find an alternate solution which might be a better solution than the one we have. But simply staying with the solution that we have and saying, look, this is all we got. This is a scarcity limits our ability to thrive. And using your cell phone as an example, I have my phone here in front of me, right? Uh, This phone uses a number of rare earth metals inside of it. This phone has elements used even in the glass, but it doesn't mean that this is the only composition of elements that we can put together to make a cell phone. Right now, there are people out there designing batteries that they're calling bio batteries made out of bacteria, made out of uh, biological elements that are totally renewable and sustainable. But it takes people to say like, hey, look, lithium ion is great, but we need something better. We need something more sustainable and let's go find it. And that's the, that's the, that's the grit. That's the grit that we need to do that. Another uh, thought on it is that, uh, you know, I, one thing that people can do at home is think about their yard this is a very, very easy thing to do. Look at your yard and ask yourself, how much water do I assume? Do I think that I'm using? Do I need, do I need that space? Is all my space in the yard used functionally? Could I get by creating a natural garden of plants that don't require me to water it? Or could I, could I put an astroturf? Could I do these alternate things that reduce the amount of water that I'm using? Could I create my own garden? Could I learn how to garden? <laughs> I don't have a yard. Could I garden in my house? Could I learn how to garden in my house? And in doing so, it's not like it's not that you're gonna, you know, de- develop a way to to fully feed yourself so you don't need the grocery store. That's not the point. The point is that you learn a little more about the environment that you didn't understand before, and you appreciate it more. And in that appreciation, you start to recognize other things that you've never done before. Uh, a simple thing that people can do tomorrow is wake up and walk outside for five minutes in the morning and just listen, take a deep breath of air, appreciate, appreciate what you have right now. Uh, And and that level of appreciation for like your human body's connection to what's around you, I think really adds, adds value. The more we can appreciate them too, the more we can actually make changes as a result of that as well. Like all those things are connected to each other. Every day is a new day, Tracy. Every day is a new day, a new start. I do have a curiosity about your, an idea you have that you hope to create or an idea you're thinking about that you're oh. excited about. Oh, I got one. I've never, I haven't done it. I've, 
mentally iterated it over and over and over and over. So my wife and I, we want to build a, uh, we want to build a sustainable house off the grid using our own rainwater and have a well that's powered by uh, solar PV and a, like a, a little wind turbine you can put on the, the, the roof. All that said and done, like that's a separate project. But one thing that I'm passionate about is the way we light our homes. So the lighting project goes something like this, that uh, if you look inside of a room, even this room I have here, we have light bulbs that I call point source lighting. Point source lighting means that you stick a light bulb in something and it just blares light at you from a, a, a specific angle. But what if we lit our homes using tangential lighting? Tangential lighting means that you are using your surfaces of the room, of the home, to light the home, to make it more atmospheric. Uh, if you think about when you go outside, yeah, the sun's shining down, but the whole atmosphere is lighting up with blue glow, right? We're bombarded with this atmospheric, uh, uh, like a submersive light that's natural when we walk outside, even, you know, even more so on a cloudy day because all that light distributes amongst the clouds. And so we, we have this different lighting, but it's still very natural feeling. I would love to make, um, make a, make tangential lighting or what I would consider natural lighting inside of homes that pulls light from, um, solar tubes from the roof down to interior rooms, and then distributes that light very evenly across the room using a surface or a tangential lighting method. And then what would be more cool is if, you know, when the sun goes down, you could connect that to a, uh, what I would, I would call like a, like a, a, a lighting matrix that would sense, that would sense the outside lighting and change the hue of your interior lighting to somewhat match the outside lighting, just so you feel more connected. And when the sun goes down, you could preset it to whatever sort of a hue that you want for your mood to be. And if you, if you love those orange orange glows of the evening to help you get into a, a sleeping pattern, then certainly have that. Uh, if you're having like a party and you want to like have some more interior lighting like that, you could certainly program it to do so. But the, I think the idea behind it is that the way we light our spaces should be more natural and mimic our environment outside as much as possible. We'd all get more sleep in the winter for sure. Yeah. I think we, we see that on our phones, you know, they, they develop things that like my phone goes black and white when after 10 o'clock you can see it's black and white now uh, but they also have phones that like take the blue hue out of your display after a certain hour and it's because they've they've seen that the circadian rhythm of the human body is is inversely affected by adversely affected by by blue light and because when the sun goes down we don't have any blue light so our bodies adapt after this and so i could go on and on tracy but i think that's yeah. a really cool idea it's certainly yeah. if any of your listenership if any of your listenership hears this and they say, Hey, I want to do that. And I want to, I want to like ping me more about it. I would love to have a conversation about that. And and I, you know, I could give you everything I have on it. Cause I'd love, I'd love to just see it happen. Whoever's listening to this, send this to the people, you know, that are, are, or that you're maybe connected to, or that you are that person reach out to Nick as well. I feel like you are an idea man and you're also somebody who executes on what you think about. And when I have been in the presence of the McKees, I always feel like I leave with more ideas than I ever had <laughs> when I came in the house. Well, I'm very grateful for that decision you've made to yeah. think about solutions, not just about the problems. I'll throw us a, a buzzword there. We started with the topic buzzword off under the topic buzzword. Tracy, when you're, when we're around you, I feel like there's synergy that goes on. We feed off of each other. Totally. 
Yeah, well, it's not hard to do in the presence of the McKees. I'm so grateful for you. And what is your last words of wisdom for us about what we can do? Every day is a new day, a new opportunity. And I look forward with faith to the, the future. Start the conversation, be, be passionate about it and do something. I think that's, that's a big key. 